I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. Welcome to another episode of GDP, the Global Development Primer podcast. And for this week, we're featuring an interview with Ruth Calderia, who has almost two decades of experience in the development and the good governance sectors, where she built considerable expertise in evaluating the impact of evidence-based advocacy initiatives that aim to enable policy changes and in developing effective and sustainable strategies for these initiatives. Currently, she works as Ignite Philanthropy Senior Strategy Advisor responsible, among other things, for the strategic direction and impact of the Out of the Shadows Index. And today, we are going to talk about what is the Out of the Shadows Index and its important role in international development today. Root, welcome to, uh, to GDP. Hi, thank you for having me. It's, it's a pleasure, and uh, it's a very... Special pleasure to talk to you about Out of the Shadows Index. Could you tell our listeners what is the Out of the Shadows Index? Yes. So uh, the Out of the Shadows Index is essentially a scorecard um, that looks at how governments around the world, in this case, 60 countries, in 60 countries, are um, doing in terms of preventing and responding to uh, child sexual exploitation and abuse. Um, So it's a very important tool uh, to monitor governmental action uh, in terms of protecting our children. And what, what goes into this tool? I mean, obviously, I can't imagine any government in the world who would advocate for these sort of actions and behaviors. So uh, what what is it that this index brings in and what is it looking for in terms of uh, improving policy in this area? Yeah, sure. That's the thing. You know, no, no government uh, wants to uh, expose their children to child sexual exploitation and, and abuse. But it's a very complex issue. It's an, it's an holistic issue in the sense that many factors um, can enable these cases uh, from emerging. And so um, the tool looks at the policies and programs that these countries have in place for preventing these cases from emerging. Um, they look at what type of protect protective legislation um, is in place, Uh, what's the level of national capacity and commitment um, in the sense of are they committed to understanding more of the issue, do they have research in place for a better understanding of what's going on and how they can effectively prevent uh, child sexual exploitation and abuse. And then the tool also looks at uh, the response side. Um, So, for instance, it assesses the support services and recovery 
that exist in a, in a given country, um, including the, the existence of civil society that is supporting the efforts to respond to these situations. And then it looks also at the justice process um, from, from the initial moment of response through to the resolution of, of these specific cases and assesses the capacity of, this, of the justice system uh, to effectively respond to child sexual exploitation and abuse. So all in all, it, it just really tries to look at everything that from a governance policy perspective can, can and actually should be in place to prevent and respond to child sexual exploitation and abuse cases. Well, that's a good point to make because, you know, justice is usually something that comes retroactively and uh, many times falls short of trying to make up for the harm done in, in these cases. So are, are there sort of policy examples in place that you, that you can point to from particular countries that are, that are doing well on, on preventing this sort of behavior from happening? Um, so the, the index scores uh, the countries on their ability uh, to to do this work to to actually um, prevent and respond to these cases, and it lists. So we have sixty countries in the index that corresponds to eighty five percent of the children and young people's population in the world. So the coverage is quite high. And the the list of the top ten that do well overall. Uh, In the first place, we find the United Kingdom, and then we have France, Sweden, Canada. It's in fourth place. Uh, We also have South Africa, South Korea, Australia, Indonesia, Turkey, and Germany. And these are the top 10. Um, And then we can also see which countries do better on the prevention side and which countries do better on the response side. Um, I think... All, you can pick up on good examples um, in all of these cases. So um, if you think, for instance, about South Africa, middle-income country, um, South Africa scores particularly well because they are actually uh, good at ensuring that there is um, education across the board in terms of identifying uh, situations of of child sexual exploitation and abuse. Something that, for instance, if we think about the justice system, many high-income countries don't seem to be as good at in terms of uh, making sure that uh, staff as well as judges and prosecutors inside the justice system are well trained for instance to handle with vic- uh, handle victims of child sexual exploitation and abuse um, so i think you you can pick up on good examples in in all the countries even the ones below the top 10 but one thing that we can say is that we do not have one country that is doing terrifically well in all the areas that we cover in the index, which is for us a motive to be concerned. Yeah, that's that's a really good point to make. That you know, no one has has you know aced this problem, and and it's it's certainly you know as, as you look at the report, as you look at the map here, it is definitely a global problem in perspective, and it's one of these things where you know any is too much, and. What's curious, I mean, is, is there's clearly a pattern here of where few countries are, are sort of 
meeting these or getting closer to these goals. But others like the United States is is ranked here at 63.6. And that's just, that's actually below Mexico. Mexico is ranked at 64.6. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to just, just decipher some of this data. And, and again, Brazil even has a, has a higher ranking than, than the United States. I mean, what is, what is being missed by, by countries like the U S or, um, you know, as a Germany is in the same the same kind of uh, boat there, score wise. Yeah, it, so it it can be uh, as I said, several issues. We are working with two hundred and around two hundred and fifty indicators, but I think the U.S. is a it's a very challenging case because we are talking about countries that have federal states. Um, so it's not a country where uh, they um, set up a national regulation and all the regions uh, abide by that regulation. So different states, they can uh, enact their own laws, regulations and policies. And the United States is one of these cases. We did uh, change the methodology this year compared to the test pilot of this index that we had in 2018. So in 2018, in the federal states, we were picking up just one state. Um, And that was biasing the scoring of these big federal states. Um, What we've done this year is that we've calculated the average and, and the United States, uh, obviously, the realities in the different uh, states. I mean, if you think of Texas and if you think, um, I don't know, any any other state more maybe up north and on the East Coast, the, the, the way that they handle these issues of child sexual exploitation and abuse, it's, it's, it's very, very different. And I guess that that is reflected in the overall scoring. Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, Germany uh, is also a, a, a federal state. So the, 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 the federal states inside Germany have a lot of power um, to decide on, on their own policies and regulations. Um, so that, that always influences the way that then the countries are scored because it captures this diversity of approaches inside uh, these countries. Right. Now, also just looking at the map, and it's, it's, you know, this is the geographer of me coming out and I'm fascinated by this, this map of, uh, that's, that's part of your index here into which we've got a link below in the, uh, the podcast so people can check it out directly. There seems to be some data gaps, uh, countries that you would expect to have information on here, uh, aren't showing like, uh, New Zealand, Spain, Portugal, uh, I can see other places like Cuba and North Korea, where you know data acquisition could be could be tricky at times to to get to uh, Yemen as well. But it's interesting to see you know members of the EU and uh, particularly New Zealand uh, not being represented in this. Yeah, and that's uh, that's unfortunate, and <laughs> but it's due to very practical reasons. So. Um, the process of collecting the data is very laborious and it's quite costly too. And so we had to select a number of countries that would give us um, a, a fairly good populational coverage. As I said, it represents 85% of the of the worldwide uh, population of children and young people, but we couldn't include all the countries because that would um, increase the cost of, mm-hmm. of running the tool. 
it, it's it's the the basic question, the basic answer to to that question. Um, we we would love to be able to increase the number of countries in the next edition. We are trying to uh, run the index every two years to ensure that. We monitor progress, and we we hope to increase the number of countries um, in 2024. So that that sort of leads into the next question then about what you envision for the future with this tool and uh, continuing to collect and pursue data. Uh, there's, I think, the future of this. Uh, what I would envisage for the future of this tool is that, of course, it continues to. Um, to collect data at a very stable interval of two years because it's really important to monitor how countries are doing and if they evolve in their approaches. Uh, but also I would hope that governments themselves take this on and use it to formulate their own policies, to understand their own gaps and uh, to make sure that they make changes. I mean, if you think about it, some of the changes are not uh, that costly. For instance, a country like France, which is the second uh, country after the United Kingdom, they are probably mm -hmm. one of the better countries um, ensuring that every organization in France that works with children and young people uh, has guidelines on 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 how to identify child uh, sexual exploitation and abuse, and they are prepared to support that. Um, and that's a that's a that's a small thing if you if you think about how much other solutions to social problems uh, require. Uh, so. For the future, definitely governments should be much more open to use the tool um, to, as I said, identify the gaps, to ensure that they formulate good policies, that they have them in place, that they resource them, and that they understand uh, what they need to do to effectively uh, uh, prevent uh, these cases and then be able to respond if they nevertheless do happen. And if I think about development, I think um, that, you know, every program that is implemented and that has to do with children and that is implemented in, in countries where our ODA goes to should think about the issue of child, child sexual exploitation and abuse. Because if you're implementing something that is related to education, um, schools are a, a terrific vehicle to to work on these issues with children if you're thinking about uh, projects on public health that target children uh, you can understand the reality of the countries where you're implementing these programs and you can perhaps be sensitive to that at the level of program design so the future would be a tool that is practically used uh, by those who can make a difference and i think that's a very important point to make is that sort of the, you know, the report that you have here is certainly interesting for any scholar interested in child welfare, child rights, human rights. And it's very well, very well presented and articulated. But the fact that you've got this rich uh, index that's based on, what is it, 250 some points. Now, those, mm -hmm. are, those are points that any government that's taken this seriously be like, okay, here's where we fell short. And mm -hmm. of the 255, here's where we're below the checklist and let's get after this. Because that way, it would seem like you're making real upstream 
preventative measures to to get behind it. And and the question then, I guess, is, you know, what 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 is then needed for 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 governments, federal governments or otherwise, to make this a greater global priority? Because you know, any is any is too much. Yeah, and and I love that you say that because we repeat that as a mantra. It's important, for instance, to collect data on prevalence, but it's it's even more important to understand that one case is bad enough. Um, so, and I also think that you, you were quite right when you said in the beginning that, you know, no government wants this. And that's absolutely true. No government wants this. I think that in the context of all the priorities, issues that are related, and it unfortunately is true, issues that relate to children always end up being put at the end of the list because, I don't know, I think unconsciously uh, people and politicians are people always think, oh, they have the parents and the adults, so they don't need to be at the front of our thinking because someone will be there taking care of them. Um and, and I think that uh, that's, that's not always the case. I think that one of the things that this index shows is that there is a complexity to uh, child sexual exploitation and abuse that goes beyond uh, the immediate environment of the child. Um, you know, policies that are, uh, that are linked to social support, even policies that are linked to gender empowerment and et cetera, can have an influence on the environment and therefore be more enabling of, of uh, these kind of cases to happen. So what I want to say is that actually what becomes a priority for many governments, if we think about moments of crisis, uh, like we are living through one right now, financial crisis, energy crisis, and etc. Uh, what becomes a priority for governments, which is usually not children, um, actually can have a fundamental impact on on children and on issues of child sexual sexual exploitation and abuse. So I think we have to be better at communicating that um, to ensure that when governments are trying to resolve the many challenges that they have, uh, that they are able to understand that that's going to have an impact on these specific issues. It's a great point. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, the point that you're making in there as well is that there is some sort of a distance between the role of many governments and the direct welfare of children. Like we, we don't often assume mm-hmm. that, that, you know, there are all sorts of child protection agencies and legislations and, schools and daycare regulations all tip to top that seem very involved but ultimately there there is quite a bit of distance between the role of any state in ensuring child well-being to that of trust in the family unit doing it for you and that is simply not a good enough guarantee i don't think no And for instance, you've mentioned the case of Germany. So Germany is an interesting case of um, where it seems that um, the action of the state stops even before the family. So in the the European context, uh, context, 
Germany um, is not doing enough outreach to parents, for instance. Um, teachers themselves in Germany are not trained uh, to recognize child sexual exploitation and abuse um, in, in, in kindergarten. So if you think of how long children spend in these places and they with people that if they are um, that they don't recognize these situations, uh, you can imagine how for how long this can go or, you know. So, yeah, I think governments don't really um, see, if you like, children as their direct stakeholders. There's a list of stakeholders that governments uh, uh, think of intervening and children are very, very low on that list. Yeah. And... The other force of nature, shall we put it, that in many ways supersedes the power of, and daily influence of government is internet and social media. So mm. these platforms, are they contributing to the problem? And if so, why? Uh, that's a, it's a very uh, complex issue, that one. Um, I think in People who work in this area, we like to talk about this continuum between, you know, um, the social life as we know it, face-to-face, -face, and the internet. It's not that one is better than the other or one is worse than the other. It's that there's definitely a connection between the two. And let me try to explain this a little bit better. Um, there is a study uh, that shows that over half of the children that you know, appear on the internet um, that are sexually exploited on the internet um, are in that situation because of someone of trust. So a person that is close to them, being a parent or a caretaker, or someone who cares for them and etc. Um, so this shows you that there is a, a continuum between, between the, the, the co-presence social situation in which the children, uh, the, the child is, and then how the child then appears on the internet. Um, and it also shows that even if you shut down the internet, uh, probably these children would still be exploited and abused in a different way. So I think it's important to think of the internet as a space that it's kind of continuing contiguous to uh, the interactions that children are having outside and the situations uh, that they live outside. Um, did it uh, make it worse? I think it, it provides another uh, vehicle um, that, um, that allows children that enables children in, a, in to be sexually exploited and abused uh, definitely yes um, but as I said is connected to the situations that are outside uh, the internet too and that that's what makes it so um, challenging and difficult it I think that it helps us to think that things are separate. Uh, because then it's like as if we can find a solution for A, then it's fine. We only think about B. Um, and particularly when you think about internet and social media, our heads go to techno fixes or something like that. And then the issue is resolved. 
but it's it's more complex than that unfortunately and it's not a new problem and it's predates the internet by centuries and so exactly. to yeah like like you like you say to to find a a loophole uh, for social media behavior that can prevent it or maybe identify it this this scenario will and has found ways to hide in, in all sorts of corners and and yet be prevalent and I, I think that's a great point that any action on social media alone isn't going to be enough and uh, this is again I think the point you made earlier is that this tool is one where it uh, gives governments the opportunity to be prescriptive and to look at the factors that go into preventing this at the upstream level. I think all that's required after that is to ensure that citizens realize that there is a tool available to keep their governments held to account to ensure that they follow it. Yeah, and we we are trying to do a lot of that. But before I explain that, I I think it's important so that it's not uh, misunderstood. I think it's really important to act on the internet space, and there are measures that are being discussed and need to be taken. And uh, you know, a lot of people have put a lot of thought into that from an accountability perspective. In the EU, there was a legislation that was recently drafted, and it's still being discussed to uh, hold uh, companies accountable when, uh, you know, to regulate more of this space. And that's very important, uh, but it is equally important to understand that there is a connection between the virtual space and then, you know, reality outside the virtual space. Um, just to make that point, in terms of having people using uh, the tool to hold governments accountable, well, that's part of the work that we we have been doing. Um, uh, we we usually we have been having a fund um, on the side of the index that we award to organizations in the civil society to help them uh, use the data um, and and have advocacy actions uh, to hold their governments accountable and actually. In, not in a in a sort of oppositional way, but rather in terms of engaging in a conversation on how they can do things better and bringing in also the point of view of of civil society to the table. And I think that's extremely important. It is also becoming uh, more and more urgent to listen to children. One of the findings from the index is that a lot of the policies, they don't seem to be thought for uh, for children. So to give you an example, um, in many countries, um, uh, rape centers are not prepared to receive children, to, to, to handle children. Um, and we are talking about sexual exploitation and abuse of children. So it is important that um, even in the in the conceptualization and the drafting of these initiatives and policies and etc, that we we have it as good practice to consult and to genuinely listen to young people, to children and young people and let them tell us from their perspective what, what can potentially work. Um, 
So I, I think it is quite important that this tool is, is also used by civil society to influence whatever happens at the governance level. That's a great piece of advice. And uh, with that, uh, Ruth Calderia, thank you so much for joining us on GDP to talk about this incredibly difficult and uh, unfortunate part of global society that continues to exist. And I do hope that the Out of the Shadows Index is something that can get the wheels moving in the right direction to to put an end to this once and for all. So thank you for the work that you're doing and thank you for sharing with our listeners the, uh, the, the insights and analysis that have come from it. Thank you very much for having me.